All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the book of Mark. Uh, I will say that Mark is my, um, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, it is my, uh, if I lead somebody to the Lord or a new believer, I'm, I'm beginning to disciple, I will, the first book I will get, have them read is the book of Mark. Um, Mark is written very verb-centrically, so it's moving quickly. Uh, in fact, one of the most often used phrases in the book of Mark is, and immediately, and immediately. And Jesus is going to do this, and then immediately. And so it moves really fast. Um, you can read the book of Mark in about an hour, uh, and that, that's really stretching it. It, it, is, it is fast moving. It tells us who Jesus is, and it tells us what's going on. Now, I've said several times from the pulpit before um, that Mark is Peter's story. Matthew is writing down what he observed as Levi, the disciple of Christ. Mark is writing down Peter's story. And I've had people say, why, why do you say that? There's nothing in the book of Mark to say that. Well, widespread evidence from the early church fathers said that this was Peter's story that was being passed on to John Mark. Uh, the earliest one is by uh, Papias, who's quoting the bishop of uh, Heropolis from 120 A.D., so that would have been about 50, 60 years after it was written, and he, Papias states that Mark, um, that he had received from John, that John of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that John had told him, and Papias was alive at the same time as John, that um, this is what the following information about Mark, that Mark was the writer for Peter, that Mark wrote down as accurately as much as he could remember of Peter's words. Um, there's no mention of Mark in the book except one verse that people have attributed to him in Mark 14, 51, it, uh, it's, uh, which says, I thought I'd put that in there. Number three, okay. Um, no, I didn't put the verse in there, though, but I thought I had. Let me read Mark 14, 51. Uh, Mark 14, 51 says, um, A young man followed Jesus. Uh, okay, so Jesus is betrayed and arrested. It says, A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he, the young man, left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And so... Throughout church history, people have said that this is Mark, and he's not saying that it's him because he's embarrassed because he ran, ran. He got caught. The soldier grabbed his clothes, and he turned out of his, his clothes and ran off naked. And so um, it was not Mark's desire to omit or misrepresent anything. Papias concluded that the gospel of Mark gains its apostolic and reliable character from its Petrine origin. And so... Uh, we, we, from very, very early on, the church has orally through tradition said that Mark is written by John Mark, and it is Peter telling John Mark his story. There's some structure uh, in Peter's sermons that we have recorded in the book of Acts that are very similar to turn of phrases or word orders that are used that, that also lead us to believe that. Internal evidence support that, that uh, Peter is the one behind 
So in Acts 10, we have Peter's Caesarean speeches, and they align with the gospel of Mark. When it was written, oh, um, we know that Mark was written to Gentiles because Mark does is consistently going through saying things like, okay, so this is what that means, or here's this thing, this is what that's about. And so we know, um, and most people assume that, the, the, again, the church tradition that Mark was written from Rome around 50, 60 AD, um, or actually more along the mid-50s, which would have only been about 25 years after Jesus, um, is the earliest of the Gospels. In fact, there are parts of Luke and Matthew, and we talked about this when we talked about the synoptic problem, but there are parts of Matthew and Luke that are just taken whole cloth out of Mark. And so it's just word for word exactly the same. Um, Most people have said that it was written from Rome around the late 50s, uh, and again, because of the fact that it's clear that Mark's audience was unfamiliar with Jewish custom. Now, so all that stuff uh, may or may not be true. That's, again, what's been taught through church history. Again, I can, because we kind of get to know the guy, Peter, through reading the Gospels, the book of Mark feels like Peter would write it because it does move so quickly and it's so rushed and everything is happening suddenly and immediately. And so it it, it just is that structure is there, but if it's not, it's not. Uh, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything about the, the truth of the book of Mark. Um, so what we can see in the book of Mark, the internal things that we can see, is that the purpose and the theme of Mark is to show Jesus' call to discipleship. Now, um, when we hear the word disciple, we think usually of the 12 apostles who were first called disciples, but the the word disciple just means learner. It's someone who sits at the feet of someone else and learns from them. Um, We've heard people say uh, about some of the, you know, the 22 coaches, 23 coaches that are out in the, the NCAA world right now who coached with or under Saban, that they're Saban disciples. And that's actually an accurate use of the term. So Jesus is calling all men to learn from him, to take on his yoke. And that is what Mark keeps coming back to, is that Jesus is wise. He knows what he's talking about. We can listen to him. So that's kind of the theme. Uh, Mark has a tendency, or we should say, Mark, if, if Peter is the one here, everybody's either for Jesus or against him. Everything seems to be black and white in the book of Mark. Um, Mark de- deals a lot with who Jesus is, what his identity is. And that's the reason why, like I said, when, when I lead someone to the Lord or, or a, a young believer saying, I just don't know where to start in the Bible, I always send them to the book of Mark because if we're saying that we're followers of Jesus, there's no better place to figure out who that Jesus is. Who does he claim to be and what is he demanding of us? And so the book of Mark does a great job of, of giving us the identity and teaching of Jesus. For Mark, discipleship is an essential relationship with Jesus. 
See, the difference between Christianity and every other religion is that Jesus isn't saying you need to earn your way to heaven. Jesus is saying that you need to follow me. And that's going to have an impact on the way that you live your life. And so this idea of us, Paul actually said later, follow me as I follow Jesus. And so Timothy is following him as he follows Jesus. And then Timothy led somebody to the Lord, who led somebody to the Lord, who led somebody to the Lord. And ultimately, if, if you know, I guess when we get to heaven, we'll be able to figure out what that line is all the way back from Jesus to you. There's a direct line there. Now, you don't know who those people are. I mean, you know who led you to the Lord and who taught you. I, I mean, I would say almost as important as the person that, that, that preached the sermon that I got saved at and the person who was the people who spoke into my life and taught me how to study the Bible. Or as a, when I was a teenager, Max Grizzard challenging me and saying, okay, so what, how, how are things going with your walk this week? And then much later in life, Russ Fox sitting down with me and teaching me how to go from studying the Bible to preaching and teaching the Bible. And those people who discipled me, and that's the term that we use, that I'm learning from them. Well, they're learning from the person behind them who learned from the person behind them all the way back to Jesus. And so Mark's theme here is that we are to be followers, that we never get to a point to when we've arrived. As Christians, we are never, ever, ever going to get to a point in this life when we've got it all figured out. And I can dare say that I never pick up God's Word and read it, that I don't go, wow, because it speaks to me freshly and newly. I mean, there's some books that I really like, um, but... Even the books like, you know, The Hobbit or, or um, I'm trying to think of some examples, Pride and Prejudice or um, The Scarlet Letter, the books that I've read five or six times, I know well that when I pick them up and I, I know how they're going to flow, right? It's not as exciting to read it the 15th time. It's still fun and it's still, used, it, but the Bible's not the same. In fact, there are texts that I've read a thousand times that tomorrow's going to speak to me tomorrow in exactly the way that I need to hear it because I've got the Holy Spirit enlightening it. And so Mark is showing us that discipleship means always being a learner. We never arrive. Discipleship also means as we follow Jesus that we should not be surprised if we encounter persecution in this world. In fact, Paul said all those who who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Don't be surprised, Jesus said, when you encounter, not if, when you encounter persecution. Now, in our country and culture today, we don't really have that much persecution. We we have pushback and we have family members who, who, you know, show up and they, they, they don't believe this, the, the, what we do and they want to push back and they want to call you. Uh, in the history of Christianity, all followers of Jesus have had to count the cost. 
And it will cost you something. And it will cost you everything, actually, because you're following him. So recognize that that's really the theme of of Mark. So some of the things that happen in the book of Mark is Jesus seeks to correct messianic expectations and misunderstandings. This is what I mean by that. Everybody thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to be about changing the local government and ruling Israel. All the disciples thought that all the way up till the crucifixion. At some point, they're expecting things to turn and Jesus to take the crown. Jesus corrects that and says, no, I must suffer. I'm going to go and be turned over to the Gentiles and be executed in three days, be raised again. And it's almost like they're not hearing it. Now, it would be easy for us to point our finger at them and say, do these people have learning disabilities? Why aren't they getting it? But then I start looking at my own heart and how often God's word clearly tells me what to do. And maybe I'm alone here, but more often than not, I do what I want to do. And so Jesus has to continually correct those expectations. Mark makes sure that we see that Jesus is a real man. It seems like throughout church history, the pendulum has swung back and forth between Jesus is all God, and so we have a hard time believing that he's a man, or, and I think the pendulum's over here right now, where we have a hard time believing the divinity of Jesus in our our culture. Mark is, the book of Matthew doesn't leave you with any misapprehension that Jesus is divine. Mark doesn't leave you with any misapprehension that Jesus is fully man. We see him tired. We see him hungry. We see him getting up early in the morning so he could get away by himself. All of the things that we experience in our life, Jesus is fully man. Mark also, though, makes sure that we understand that Jesus is fully and completely the Son of God. There's no doubt from Mark that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has all power and authority. Again, as we said when we were talking about some of those misunderstandings, Jesus makes sure that we see that the Son of Man must suffer. We see that Jesus is Lord. Now I want to park here for a minute because whenever um, someone comes to me and says they're ready to be baptized... I always, um, I, I kind of have the same script that I use, and I, I will ask them, what are, wh- why do you want to be baptized? Tell me why you'd like to be baptized. Whether it's a child or an adult, I, I do the same thing. And tell me why and what's going on. Uh, and then they'll say, well, I got saved. And I'll, I'll always say, uh, and sometimes they don't use that word, and I'll have to bring them back to that, but usually you'll get saved in there. And I'll say, okay, so what are you saved from? If, if I were in a fire and I said, a fireman saved me, what would I be saved from? And the, especially kids, they'll be quick to be like, oh, you're saved from fire or you're saved from smoke. Or, and I'm absolutely. So if I said that the, someone from the Coast Guard saved me, what would I be saved from? 
Sometimes I'll get drowning, sharks, water. Um, but they get, they get the general point. I said, okay, so you said you were saved, and I'm asking you, what are you saved from? And I'll usually get sin, hell, sometimes the devil, those kind of answers. And I always say, now I'm going to tell you what the Bible says, and I want just don't, don't just, it's going to seem a little strange at first. And I'm going to say, uh, you are saved from God. What do you mean I'm saved from God? The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's none righteous, no, not one. And that what we deserve from God, the payment that we deserve is death. The wages of sin is death. And so what we deserve is God's wrath. The Bible makes it really clear that um, the punishment that we deserve then is then taken by Jesus. That is how we get saved when we accept that. And so we're saved from God. We're saved by God. He's the one who came up with the plan. And we see that half of the themes, or more than half of the themes in the book of Mark, are showing us how even those people who were alive when he was there didn't understand the plan. They didn't understand what was going on. It didn't make sense to them. They thought he was coming back with a rod of iron. They thought he was coming back to occupy a throne. They didn't understand what was going on, and Jesus had to repeatedly correct them. The plan was God, so we're saved from God. We're saved completely and totally by God, and we're ultimately saved to the glory of God. It's God's story. So how do we fit into the story? And I will take them to Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a, there's a lot of fancy words in that, right? So confess, and we've, we've talked about that a lot here, how confess is the Greek word homologeo, to say the same thing with God, and how uh, we can, we're agreeing with God, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, which is the biblical way of saying it. Sometimes in church we say, you can make Jesus the Lord of your life, and I hate that language. We don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. We agree with God that he is Lord. He didn't need us to do anything for him. We're agreeing with God. We're confessing that he is Lord. But then you get to that word Lord, kiros in, in the Greek. What does that mean? When the English Bible was translated in the 16th, 17th, uh, John Wycliffe, most of the word choices that we have in the Bible, even if you're using a modern Bible, John Wycliffe is the one who picked those words. And Lord, when, when he chose that word, meant something outside of Christianity. It meant the person who the Lord owned the land that you lived on. He's the one who dictated how you were going to farm it, what you were going to farm. And if he, the king came to him and said, because the king was that Lord of the manor's Lord, the king said, hey, we're going to war with 
England or with France or we're going to war with Spain or we're going to go to war with India or wherever, you didn't have a choice in the matter. You said, yes, sir. And then you got the number of people. And if you were a farmer and he came and said, all right, you're a yeoman. You've been able, I've been letting you live for this long and farm this land. So King wants us. So come on, let's go. We're going to France. He controlled you. And so when that was translated, that meant something. Now we use it religiously, and that's the only place we use it. Because we don't have anything like that in our culture, right? But we need to understand that when it says that Jesus is Lord, it means he owns it, whatever he's Lord of. The examples that we give, like in 228, it says... um, the Sabbath is not made for man, but not, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It means he owned the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I own the rest. Which, for us as believers, that'll preach, man. You ever gotten just got so exhausted with life? And Jesus owns the rest. We go to him And he gives that to us. But we need to understand that this lordship is that he gets to tell us what to do. He owns us. There's no, Jesus said, you say you love me. If you love me, keep my commandments. And it seems to me in the church today in 2021, that idea of actually doing what Jesus said to do seems to be have fallen somehow out of the, the, the conversation. It's all God loves me and God has a wonderful plan for my life and so I can just do whatever I want to and God is just my pawpaw, right? He's not really stressing on what I've done. I can crawl up in his lap and he's going to give me a silver dollar. I mean, my parents, when I had kids, lost their minds I mean, my dad, I, I today wouldn't backtalk my mom in his presence. Not that I backtalk my mom all that much, because I'm pretty sure there would be consequences. And I remember one time my son was standing there and said, yeah, to dad. And I'm like, hey, yes, sir. And dad said, leave that boy alone. And I'm like, who are you? Because if I yad my mama, you'd probably rattle my gums today. But I'm supposed to leave him alone? And we think that that's God. He's not really stressing what we're doing. He just loves us. That's the God that seems to be presented all the time. God does love you. And God loves you enough to correct you. And Jesus said, if you love me, if you love me, you'll do what I said to do. And that means a change in the way we live our lives. And recognizing that God knows better than us. I mean, we've all had to have that conversation with our kids when they're teenagers because the teenage child knows exactly how everything's supposed to go. And they don't understand, well, why can't I stay out till 3 o'clock like all my friends? Because I said so, A, and because after, and I still believe in the old school way, After 10 o'clock, there ain't nothing going on that you need to be involved in. I'm just saying. And how do I know that? Not because I'm an ogre, but because I've been there. 
at 12.30. And you know what? The consequences of those actions of mine didn't turn out real well. In some cases, I'm still paying for the consequences of those actions. And I'm trying to protect them from those consequences and trying to protect them from hurting themselves. And so Mark hammers home the idea that Jesus is Lord. He is the owner. He is the ruler. He is king of kings and lord of lords. There is no authority that is higher than him. We see Jesus calling his followers to imitate him in humble service. You're seeing, should be seeing this on repeat. This is exactly what we talked about with discipleship. We see Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God and the implication that God is calling a people to himself. That God is recreating humanity through the redemptive work of his son. The outline of the book is, is super simple. There's an introduction. Then we have Jesus' authority. And Jesus' authority is shown first in his, uh, his early Galilean ministry, then his later Galilean ministry, and then beyond that. So Jesus' authority is shown over. And when I say his authority, Mark doesn't just ha- pronounce that Jesus is Lord. He shows that Jesus is Lord over sickness because when someone who's sick comes up to him, Jesus banishes the sickness from their life. Jesus shows that he's Lord over demons because when someone comes up to him that is controlled by a demon, Jesus banishes that demon from their life. We see Jesus' authority over and over and over again and that he rules over the spiritual realm and he rules over the physical realm. That when he sees someone who is blind, when they leave Jesus, they can see. When someone who is crippled from birth comes to Jesus, when they leave Jesus, they're dancing away from him. And that's important to us as we live our lives because that was Jesus showing his authority. But we know from his teaching that he's ultimately going to heal us. I mean, every one of us in here, we have aches and pains and medications and and. What is it, Bruce, you say that after 50, it's all maintenance work, right? So we're just trying to duct tape it together until we get to glory, right? Amen, brother. That's the truth. That's not going to be the case when we get to heaven. Sickness and disease will be banished from your life. Am I the only person who, in the face of my own sin thinks, how long am I going to keep being this stupid? My sin will be banished. The Bible says that in today that we are being redeemed measure by measure, little by little, but on that day we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Instantaneously we will be glorified. And that Yes, we see him as Lord over sickness, over demons, over, and in this world we groan, with the world we groan awaiting the final redemption. But on that day, 
we will be made perfect. It's good stuff. So we see the testing of Jesus' authority and suffering through the latter half from eight all the way to the end is um, dealing with Jesus going to Jerusalem, entering Jerusalem, teaching in Jerusalem, and then his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Um, And so, as I said, Mark reads fast. I would commend the book of Mark to you. I will say um, one of the things that I have tried to make a habit in my life, um, I don't fight sleep. If I wake up in the middle of the night um, or if I uh, can't go to sleep, I will fight with it for a little bit, and then I'll get up and read. And Mark is one of those books that I love to uh, if I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, just open up and read, and it never fails to feed me um, and, and excite me. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this book. Lord, we praise you that you are Lord. And we look forward to your redeeming your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.